0: This is the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Greetings, friends. You're listening to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, the podcast that aims to start conversations about the oneness and unity of God and about the humanity of Jesus. Thank you so much for joining us this week at the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. My name is Dustin Smith, and as always, I will be your host. This is episode 159, entitled The Victory Hymn in Revelation chapter 12. Now did you know that the Biblical Unitarian Podcast has a YouTube channel with various short 5-7 to minute truths that you can share with your friends? Why haven't you subscribed to the Biblical Unitarian Podcast YouTube channel? Do be sure to check us out and let us know what you think because we have big plans for our YouTube channel, please look forward to it. In this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast, we will look into the narrative of Revelation chapter 12 in order to examine the worship hymn contained within. This call-and-response hymn, which is the fifth hymn to appear in Revelation, actually mentions the people of God acting faithfully, specifically in ways that identify with and model Jesus Christ. Now, what can we learn about monotheism and the risen Jesus when we look at this important hymn of worship? Let's find out on this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Our first point today is looking at the fifth hymn in Revelation. I'll read our hymn, which is three verses long, starting in Revelation chapter 12 and verse 10. Then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren, has been thrown down, he who accuses them before our God day and night. And they overcame him because of the blood of the Lamb and because of the word of their testimony, and they did not love their life even when faced with death. For this reason, rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Woe to the earth and the sea, because the devil has come down to you, having great wrath, knowing that he has only a short time. That's Revelation 12, verses 10 through 12. So as I mentioned, this is another of Revelation's call and response hymns. So there's a call portion with its singers and the contents of the singing, and there is a response with its singers and the contents of that singing. The call portion comes from, according to verse 10, a loud voice in heaven. And the contents of this call portion covers the largest portion of our passage, verses 10 through 11. Within this call portion, it addresses God and describes him as our God twice. It also portrays the Christian family as our brethren. So from the perspective of the speakers, their God is our God, and the believers are described as their brethren, their family, their brothers and sisters. Now, since we already know That the 24 elders are symbolically portrayed within Revelation's imagery as being in heaven according to what we see in the throne room vision of Revelation chapter 4 it is at least reasonable to guess that they are among those who are speaking this call portion in other words if we know that the 24 elders represent the imagery of the faithful people of God and if they're located in heaven and if the speakers here who are located in heaven speak of other Christians as our brethren then it's very likely that the 24 elders are among those at least who are singing this call portion now we can all agree that chapter 12 verse 11 speaks of believers regardless of who is singing the call portion. Verse 11, of course, speaks of those who have identified with the blood of Jesus, who faithfully preach the word of their testimony, and who do not love their life when faced with death. So Christians are sung about within this worship hymn. And that is very interesting. Now, the response portion of this call-and-response hymn comes from the heavens and those who dwell in them. We can see this in verse 12. The heavens and those who dwell in them are called to rejoice, which is just another fancy word which means to celebrate. But nothing more is said about their response. So we'll be focusing the majority of our investigation on the call portion because most of the words within this hymn are dedicated to that part of the hymn. Now, scholars have examined this call and response hymn and they have noticed some very clear signs of musical arrangement, which further highlights its intended purpose for the readers to incorporate this hymn into their actual worship practices. We can see that the hymn is carefully constructed with three strophes, which is just another word for a stanza. And these three stanzas coincidentally correspond with the verses that are attributed to them. Stanza 1 is in verse 10, stanza 2 is in verse 11, and stanza 3 is in verse 12. Now, the opening and the closing stanzas have four lines, while the middle stanza, which seems to be the high point of the hymn, has three lines. We can also detect some rhyming, specifically when we look at the Greek text of our hymn. Of course, because the Greek text has to be translated into English, it's almost impossible to recreate this sense of rhyming uh, in the English language. When we look at the Greek text, it seems as if there is some deliberate rhyming that is taking place. Most of the lines in the first stanza have the word emon repeating. And of course, the sound emon rhymes with other words in the following stanzas. Particularly those that end with omega-ni. We can also note that the second stanza has rhyming words arniu and thanatu, meaning lamb and death. The third stanza also has some words that rhyme thalasan and megon, meaning sea and great, respectively. We can also note some parallelism with the parallel words and their cognates. Stanza 1 has the word accuser and the word accusing, which are related in Greek. We have some antithetical parallelism in stanza 3, with rejoice on one hand and woe on the other hand, the heavens on one hand and the earth on the other. And the third line of the first and last stanzas begin with the word O.T., suggesting a causal connection. It's a word meaning because. Something is true because of X. So there's a lot of reasons why scholars have concluded that this is an actual hymn that was incorporated into the worship of the early church, and that it was intended for the original readers to be used in that manner. Now, the context of this hymn involves the large narrative plot twist, as you might call it, within chapter 12. What do I mean by plot twist? Well, the narrative revelation prior to chapter 12 involved the conflict of the original readers of the seven Asian churches. And those in conflict with them could be identified reasonably as Roman imperial agents, perhaps the Jews from the local synagogue, maybe some of the local pagans who harass Christians for not worshiping Caesar, or it could be members of their own congregations who exhibit compromising leadership or sinful behavior. So prior to chapter 12, the opponents of the faithful people of God could refer to any of those persons on earth. However, chapter 12 unveils the entire narrative and depicts the conflict that is facing the Christians in the seven Asian churches as not merely local, but also cosmic in nature. The local conflicts are actually seen as an extension of a much larger conflict that is taking place. Instead of the Christians being harassed by local imperial authorities, we actually see that there is a woman that is being harassed by a red satanic dragon. And the woman almost certainly represents the people of God, past and present. The narrative of chapter 12 also indicates that there is a child of this woman, which clearly refers to Jesus, and this child ascends to heaven and is enthroned. This, of course, seems to be the event referring to the death, resurrection, exaltation, and enthronement of the Son of God. Now, the narrative of chapter 12 sees the ascension and the enthronement of Jesus as something that begins a war in heaven, Where the angels defeat the dragon, and this results in the dragon being cast down to earth. So, in other words, the victory achieved by the cross, resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus creates the context for this call and response hymn, which immediately follows those nine verses of narrative. So we need to keep this in mind, especially as we consider the kingdom language that is contained within this particular hymn. Now, let's talk about the actual contents of the hymn, not just the narrative and the context, but the contents of what is actually being sung. The call portion of the hymn, which is the largest portion, will take up the majority of our discussion. The hymn begins in verse 10, and we have the singing with the temporal marker now. And the word now, of course, frames the contents of the singing in alignment with the narrative of chapter 12 that we have seen thus far. In other words, Jesus has been raised, ascended to heaven, and exalted to share in God's rule, This results in the defeat of the devil, where the devil is thrown down to earth. The singing celebrates the arrival, or the coming, of some crucial things. In particular, it says that the salvation, power, and kingdom of our God have come. Additionally, the authority of the Messiah has also come. Now since this event is celebrating the victory of Jesus and the defeat of Satan in light of that victory, it is unlikely, in my opinion, that the coming of the kingdom here refers to the same event that was previously described in the hymn of chapter 11, which occurred at the seventh trumpet, and it was accompanied by the Day of Judgment. The kingdom, or perhaps it is better translated as the reign or rule of God, which comes at the exaltation of Jesus and the subsequent defeat of Satan, must be an inaugurated version of the kingdom, not the consummated version that occurs at the return of Jesus, the seventh trumpet, and the day of judgment. In other words... The kingdom as it appears in Revelation chapter 12 is a kingdom that is already, but it is not yet. It is inaugurated, but not yet consummated. The reign of God has begun, but it's not yet fully realized. It is also interesting that the arrival of the authority of Christ mentioned in the call is distinguished from the arrival of the salvation power and kingdom of god so we need to discuss what the authority of jesus means having been raised from the dead exalted to heaven and having received a share in god's own throne according to chapter 12 and verse 6 this surely indicates a promotion in the authority that Jesus possesses. In fact, Jesus himself said that he has received authority from the Father all the way back in Revelation 2.27. So what we're seeing here is not anything new. Now the singing also celebrates the victory of the faithful people of God. We can see that in verse 11. So not only we have the celebration of the power and kingdom of God and the authority of Christ. We also have the people of God celebrated within this worship hymn. And in verse 11, we can see that these people of God are described as conquerors. Namely, those who have conquered the dragon. And they have conquered the dragon specifically by doing three things. Number one, They have identified with the blood of Jesus, which indicates that Jesus has died. Of course, he has been raised and ascended to heaven. Number two, these Christian conquerors are preaching the word of their testimony, which, according to Revelation, is Jesus' gospel, and Jesus preached the gospel of the kingdom. And number three, these faithful believers refuse to love their life when faced with death. This, of course, is a willingness to remain faithful to the point of even dying as a martyr. Now, while the singers of the call portion are somewhat in question in regard to their identity, there is no question that the persons celebrated in verse 11 are, in fact, the faithful people of god namely the ideal readers of the book of revelation let's spend some time looking at these readers that moves us to our second point point number two today is the role of the readers in revelation chapter 12. i've already mentioned that the christian conquerors are those about whom the singing describes in the call portion, specifically in chapter 12, verse 11. Remember that they are described as our brethren, our brothers and sisters, the members of our family. They are described as conquerors. And conquerors is the designation that the faithful readers of these seven churches in chapters 2 through 3 are frequently described as. We also know that these conquerors identify with Jesus' blood and the hymn in chapter 5 celebrates the believers as those who are purchased with Jesus' blood and they have been made into a kingdom and into priest in the present. So we have another tie with the inaugurated kingdom in describing these people of those who have identified with the blood of Jesus. They are reigning already, in some sense, as faithful conquerors. Moreover, these faithful people of God participate in the inaugurated reign of God, the inaugurated kingdom, by speaking forth the gospel of the kingdom of God, which Revelation calls the testimony of Jesus or the word of their testimony. Now those conquerors, when they are acting faithfully, when they refuse to accommodate, and when they take up the mantle of faithful conquerors, they inevitably are going to face pushback. Their allegiance to God's kingdom is going to bring about some form of persecution and harassment, and it describes these Christians as those who refuse to love their life. What it means to refuse to love your life means that they don't compromise in order to maintain a particular aspect of livelihood. They don't accommodate to the culture or to sin in order to maintain a love of their life. They certainly don't love their life by responding and retaliating violently or with slurs. Instead, they remain faithful, even if it means that they have to die as a martyr. This, of course, further identifies them with Jesus, whom Revelation calls the faithful martyr in chapter 1, verse 5. Now, I find it absolutely fascinating that the hymn sings about the faithful people of God in a way that hopes to persuade the readers to be faithful themselves. In other words, the worship aims to promote practical application, not merely the singing of a melody on a Sunday morning in church. Those who participate in the singing of this hymn would be moved to model the persons described within it. If you are singing about the faithful conquerors, in chapter 12 and verse 11, then inevitably you would want to emulate that description of what it means to be a faithful conqueror. We can now see worship acting as a manner of conquering that could actually lead to someone being martyred. So don't let anyone tell you that the contents of your worship has no practical application for your life. The hymns in Revelation beg to differ. Now let's look at God and Jesus within this particular hymn. This moves us to our third point, which is the implications for worship within a monotheistic setting. Not only does this worship hymn celebrate the faithful conquering people of God, it also celebrates the victory of God and Jesus. Luckily for us, God and Jesus are defined in ways that help us understand how early Christians understood the two of them. Within our hymn, we can see that God is described as our God, not once, but twice. And by describing the God as our God, this is emphasizing the fact that the one true God is that one God that belongs to the people. This, of course, is going to contrast other competing figures of worship that are described as God, like Caesar, Apollo, and Zeus. In the Greek text, it's not just our God. It is the God of us, with the definite article. The one God that we all share. And when Jesus is described in this passage he is described as his Christ, the Christ belonging to our God. And By describing him as his Christ, he uses a singular pronoun, and this indicates that our God is a single person. Our God, in this passage, has someone distinguished from him, namely his Christ. So let's talk about Christ. Let's talk about Jesus. This Christ is, Is not merely the anointed King he is the Christ that belongs to our God it is God's Christ God's anointed King our God has a Christ that belongs to him and clearly our God and Jesus are distinguished we also know that this Christ figure was someone who was mortal having died and shed his blood, as it is mentioned in verse 11. Within this hymn of worship, we can see clearly that God and Christ are not collapsed into a single being. They remain distinct. And the figure of Christ is certainly not our God. So again, we have a worship hymn that speaks about God and Jesus together. Although the hymn is about God and Jesus, rather than sung to God and Jesus, they both make an appearance within the singing. So we can see that monotheism, strictly unitary monotheism, is maintained without any sort of question or threat to that doctrine. There is also an exalted, anointed king who bears the authority of God and he sits alongside God. There is no hesitation in the singing about God and Jesus within the same hymn of worship. We should also point out, for the sake of the argument, that the Holy Spirit is not mentioned anywhere within this worship hymn. The Holy Spirit is not the object of worship in this hymn or anywhere within the book of Revelation, and at this point in Christian history, the Holy Spirit is not a separate person from God with its own identity and its own personhood. So, in conclusion, we have observed that the book of Revelation sets its fifth call and response hymn in the midst of the narrative plot twist of chapter 12. The victory of Jesus, which includes his death, resurrection, Ascension and exaltation results in a defeat of Satan and singing within heaven. We first noted that the call portion of the hymn celebrates the inauguration of God's kingdom, power, and salvation. It also rejoices over the arrival of the authority of Christ, the anointed king of this kingdom the worship hymn also portrays the faithful people of God as those who identify with Jesus' death, those who participate in the preaching of Jesus' gospel, and those who emulate the life of faithfulness that could lead to martyrdom, which also was demonstrated by Jesus. In other words, the worship hymn sings about the behavior that the intended readers of Revelation Are to put into practice. We also observed that the hymn consists of three verses poetically arranged as three stanzas, having a deliberate order, words that rhyme, and various forms of parallelism. This indicates that the hymn functioned in a way to bring about an authentic worship within the lives of Revelation's original readers, not just something to be read on the pages of the papyri. Lastly, we carefully noted that the one God is celebrated in the hymn as, quote, our God, end quote. This God is defined with a singular pronoun and, most importantly, he is distinguished from his Christ. Unitary monotheism continued to be maintained in the singing of this worship hymn while the risen and highly exalted Jesus was celebrated alongside the only true God. In short, the call-in-response hymn located within Revelation chapter 12 portrays God as a single person and... Jesus Christ as the anointed king belonging to this God. And there you have it. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of the Biblical Unitarian Podcast. Be sure to join us next week as we look at the sixth hymn within the book of Revelation, specifically the hymn in chapter 15. If you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider supporting us as we promote these very important truths about the oneness and unity of God and the humanity of Jesus. You can rate us on iTunes so that others can find us, and if you feel led to donate, you may check out this episode's description for a link to PayPal. Again, be sure to check us out on YouTube, and I want to offer a special thanks to our producer and editor, Dustin Williams. My name is Dustin Smith. Until next time, you folks take care.